you have your Bibles, go ahead and open to Acts chapter 6. As I've been studying this passage, one of the reasons why I have so much appreciated the extra week to reflect on this is I have found this to be an incredibly encouraging passage as well as an incredibly enlightening passage for what the church is to do when problems arise in our midst. As we're starting this new year, as we're looking forward to what God is going to do, we're already aware of some things that we think, man, that's going to be hard. What exactly are we going to do about this? What does a church do when there's problems, not outside? We've seen lots of those in the book of Acts already. What do we do when the problems are right here? Now, I'm, I'm going to, the elephant in the room, I'm going to reference this. Back on December 3rd, Billy and Julie came and stood here on the platform, our pastor, Pastor Billy and his wife, Julie, and shared with us something that is good, but really hard. That Billy is feeling called and led to be in full-time ministry, preaching God's word. And we look at that, and, and in our head we think, no, that's a good thing, but man, I think that's going to cause some problems. We might even look at that and say, that's a problem. One of the things that we're going to see in this passage, and, and has been enlightening to me, is how do we define what a problem is? Sometimes do you ever do that with words where you start thinking about it and say, wait a second, if someone tries to ask you, can you give me a definition? Can you tell me, no, this is what defines, this is what uh, constitutes a problem. Do you have an answer in your mind? What is it that you would look at and say, oh, well, this is a problem. When it's uncomfortable? When you would rather do something else? when it's an inconvenience, when it causes pain, if it's something that is uh, discomfort, what do you define as a problem? That's a question that we're going to develop in this passage when we want to look and say, wait a second, what does God say problems are? Can we recognize the problems when God says, this is a problem? And then, obviously, we don't want to just recognize problems. Some people, I would count myself one of those people, have a skill in seeing problems. Like, ooh, that could be better. Mm, nope, that's not good. But just that, that can be a skill. What do you need to go along with that skill? You need to resolve it. You need problem solving. Thankfully, our passage is going to give us both. It's not only going to help us recognize the real problems, it's also going to show us the wise way in which we might resolve said problems. Here's our big idea this morning. Recognize and resolve problems in our midst according to the priority of our God-given mission. Recognize and resolve problems in our midst according to the priority of our God-given mission. Now, I want to just say one thing about this big idea. And I'm, I should have looked this up, but I just thought about it while Ted was preach, uh, praying. Um, 
in grammar, sometimes you have a non-stated subject where it's an implied subject. Anyone remember what that is? I don't remember, but it's when you're diagramming a sentence, it's when you put it in brackets and you put you. That's what this sentence is. There's no subject. You recognize and resolve. This big idea is not they must recognize, the pastors must recognize and resolve. We could state it if we're going to do it in the plural, we must recognize and resolve problems in our midst according to the priority of our God-given mission. Let's look at this first section about how we might recognize real problems according to this God-given mission. Look at verse 1. Now in these days, when the disciples were increasing in number, a complaint by the Hellenists arose against the Hebrews because their widows were being neglected in the daily distribution. I'm just going to real quickly just give some, some groundwork for this verse, help us to understand what's going on in the context so that then we can start going back, digging a little bit deeper so that we might glean how is it that we recognize problems. One of the first things that we see is when this is happening. Look at the verse. Now in these days, when what? When the disciples were increasing. Are these good days or bad days? They're good days. On top of that, the these days is also referring, connecting to what happened in the verse before at the end of chapter 5. And every day in the temple and from house to house, they did not cease teaching and preaching that the Christ is Jesus. So the apostles, after they came through a difficult trial, they have continued to preach house to house in the temple. And in these days, the disciples are increasing in number. Now here's just a little aside Sometimes we think that problems only come in bad times. When is this problem coming? It's coming during a time of increase. It's a time of growth. Again, if I were to connect this to our condition right now, the reason Billy is looking to be a pastor, to continue this ministry, his ministry elsewhere, is not because we've had problems here and he's like, oh no, that, that ship is sinking. I need to jump out. I need to go. No, he's saying, this church has what it needs. I want to go and provide and give so other so that the word can continue. It's a time of growth that we're experiencing difficulty here in our church. But then we have this problem here. A complaint by the Hellenists arose against the Hebrews because their widows were being neglected in the daily distribution. Now just very simply, what is the problem that we see in this text? The widows are being neglected. That's not a pretend problem. That's not something where it's like, oh, come on. You guys really need to eat every day? Like, yeah, let's, let's, we've got other things. No, this is a real problem. Do you think that those widows were feeling this issue? Yes. Now, understanding some of the context here, we have these two groups among the disciples, the Hebrews and the Hellenists. Both of those are Jewish in ethnicity. They're both Jews, and all of these are among the disciples. What's the difference between these two groups? One of them speaks Hebrew and Aramaic. One of them speaks Greek. 
Some of these, the Hellenists, have also accepted other cultures. Now, we're not as far as what we're saying, what we would look at in Scripture as Samaritans who have mingled with other people who are not part of God's people. We're not talking about that. But there is a division naturally between these two groups to the point where in that culture there, there were Jewish uh, in in Hebrew and Aramaic synagogues, and then there were Greek-speaking synagogues. And so there's already a natural human division. And what are the Hellenists seeing? Our widows are getting neglected. This is a problem. Now, for us to understand the culture here as far as widows, widows in that time were some of the the people, if they did not have family, they had very little means of survival. Other places in scripture, it's going to tell the church how to care for widows. And they'll say, now, if they have family, if they have children, if they let the children take care of them. And it gives a list of instructions. But it understands. But if they have nothing, let them be added to the roles. Let them be known so that we might care for them because or else they'll be destitute. What book have we just gone through that would give us a little bit of a clue as to what kind of what would be happening to widows in that day? What book? Ruth. The benefit that Ruth had or Naomi had was she still owned what? She still owned land. She still had some options. The Hellenist widows that are coming back to Jerusalem, possibly even wanting to still die in the Holy Land, they don't have those benefits. Those things are long gone. So is this a problem? Why? I don't want to be insensitive here, but the reality is, aren't there lots of people in the world going hungry? I mean, is, is the church supposed to care for every single need that happens in the world? Why is this such a big problem? The question that we need to understand, what we need to get to, and we're going to spend some time developing, is what constitutes a problem? What is the definition of a problem? And, and here's what I want to do very briefly for us to consider this. I want us to think back on what some of the things we've already seen in Acts What happened to Peter and John when they healed the lame man? Where did they, where where were they put? Prison. What happened when they get out? Who would they have to sit in front? All of the most powerful people. What did the most powerful people say? Hey, you need to stop doing this. Would you, if you're Peter or John, look at that as a problem? Hey, I, I went into prison. I got threatened by the people who tell the captain and the guard what to do. They've got money. They got Jesus killed. Would we look at that as a problem? We'll come back to what the apostles do. What about next? What happens later in the, in the story? What happens when people are bringing their offering to the feet of the apostles? They're laying it down. What happens to one of those individuals? <laughs> Struck dead. Then his wife comes along. What happens to her? As a pastor, if we were doing an offering and you're watching and two of the people that come up, God knows what you did, and they're dead, do you think that might impact future offerings? (laughs) Do you think... As far as even evangelism, people are going to be like, I don't know. Like, look, I was a Jew for a long time. That never happened. 
But some of these Christian people, like they started meeting, they've already had two spontaneous deaths in their congregation. I'm not, I don't know if I want to be part of that. Would we look at that spontaneous deaths in the midst of the congregation as a problem? Okay, we'll come to their response. How about what happens next? All 12, not just Peter and John, all 12 of them are in the temple. They're proclaiming Christ. What happens? They get thrown in jail. After they get out of jail and then are brought back, what, what happens then? They're threatened and more than the last time, what happens? They're beaten. These 12 people, all of the leaders of this church that's just starting, they're beaten, they're threatened. Again, if someone came in, took Billy, myself, the deacons, the leaders of this church and said, we're taking you to jail, we're beating you, would we say that's a problem? Think about the response now. The first time when it's Peter and John, they get out of jail, they run to the rest of the church and they pray with them. What do they pray? Do they pray, God, keep us out of prison? Lord, these people, these rulers and their power, stop them. Bring them down into judgment. No, what do they pray? Lord, give us courage. Do not let us stop what you have told us to do. With Ananias and Sapphira, God, can you not do that again? We're like trying to build something here. We've got a lot of momentum going. A lot of people are starting to come to church. If you could just like judge people through natural methods or natural means somewhere else, like let's not do that here in this moment. No, why didn't they do that? Because they were more concerned. The bigger problem was that there would be people in the church whose hearts were far from God, though their mouths proclaimed that they were close. It wasn't according to the mission. When all of the 12 are in prison and the, and the rulers say, you must not do this. What do they say? We must obey God rather than men. What was the problem? That in the face of such persecution, they would abandon what Christ, what God had commissioned them to do. So here's the definition that I want us to think about as far as a problem. A problem is anything that hinders, impedes, or negatively impacts our goal and mission. I'm going to say that again. A problem is anything that would hinder, impede, or negatively impact our goal and mission. Understand this. Trials do not necessarily mean they're problems. Is it a trial to be in prison? Yes. Is it a problem? Well, that depends. Is it impeding your mission to be a witness of Christ? Do you know where the book of Acts ends? Where's Paul at the end of the book? He's in prison. Is it presented as a problem? No, because it says that the word of God was going forth unhindered. And so for Acts, for Luke, as he's showing us this, what he's demonstrating is, do you know how you recognize a problem? If it's getting in the way of your mission. That could be a good thing. It could be a bad thing. It could be a trial. It could be a time of blessing. But if it's getting in the way of our mission, it's a problem. And what's our mission in, in Acts? Acts 1, chapter, uh, verse 8. You will be my witnesses. That's the mission. So now let's look again back to verse 1. What's the problem 
that's happening in this passage. The first problem is that it is impacting their witness of who Christ is. I want you to notice, how are the, all of these believers referred to in, right at the beginning? Now, in these days, when the what? Disciples. This is the first time in Acts that all of the Christians are referred to as disciples, rather than disciples meaning just the 12. This is now referring to all of the believers as disciples. What is a disciple? It's a follower of Christ. It is one who has placed themselves under and said, I model, I go after that one. You are a disciple of Christ. What do we know about the character of Christ when it comes to the least of these? Are we being good disciples, good witnesses of Christ when those who in that community could give us nothing in return from, for our investment when we neglect them, is that a good witness of who Christ is? And we don't have to think about Christ in the sense of what he does for the least of these, thinking, oh, well, Jesus ate with, with sinners and Jesus did, did this. No, your own story, my own story. Was there anything that we can give in return for all that Christ has given us where we're saying like, ah, that's a fair trade. No, what Christ got, does, the character of Christ is that he does this for the least of these. See, there are a few better ways to, of demonstrating the transformation produced by the gospel and the indwelling of the Holy Spirit than a new community who sacrificially loves and serves those who can give them nothing in return. That's gospel revealing. And this has been part of the story so far in Acts. Turn to Acts 2, the very end of Acts 2. This is how it ends in verse 42. This is the description of what would look like the body of Christ. And they devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching and the fellowship, to the breaking of bread and the prayers. And all came upon every soul, and many wonders and signs were being done among the apostles. And all who believed were together and had all things in common. They were selling their possessions and belongings and distributing the proceeds to all as any had need. Jump to the end of chapter 4. Chapter 4, verse 32. Now, in the full, now the full number of those who believed were of one heart and soul, and no one said that any of the things that belonged to him was his own. But they had everything in common, and with great power the apostles were giving their testimony to the resurrection of the Lord Jesus, and great grace was upon them all. There was not a needy person among them, for as many as were owners of lands or houses sold them and brought the proceeds of what was sold and laid it at the apostles' feet, and it was distributed to each as any had need. Is that a good demonstration of what a disciple of Christ should look like? Does that look like the body of Christ when the church is saying, you're going to have nothing you can give me in return, but you're my brother. You're my sister. I love you. Christ loved me when I could give nothing in return, and therefore we also want to love you. That's the demonstration of what is meant to happen. So what's the problem? Is that still the testimony that they have? See, the, the deeper issue here is not just that the widows are going hungry. The deeper issue is that this is negatively impacting the words of truth that they are speaking. The deeper impact is that this is taking away from their witness. 
James 2, 1 through 5 talks about this. Show no partiality. Don't have the rich person and say, you sit here in this place of honor and throw the poor person away. How we treat the mighty among us does not reveal the power of the gospel. It's how we treat the ones that the world says have no value. But we say Christ Christ has shown that they have infinite value. But there's another problem. What's the other problem in this verse? Again, there's the physical problem. There's people going hungry, which shows a deeper issue that it's impacting a witness. But what, what, how have the Hellenists looked at this? There's a complaint. A complaint by the Hellenists arose against the Hebrews. I'm going to tell you right now that is my opinion that that is wrong. Now you might say, wait a second, Stephen... Their widows were going hungry. They have a reason to complain. And what I would say is, they have a problem to resolve. They do not have a reason to complain. What does complaining actually produce? The word here that's used is only used four times in the New New Testament. And it's always the word grumbling. You know what Philippians 2.14 says? Do all things without grumbling or disputing, that you may be blameless and innocent children of God without blemish in the midst of a crooked and twisted generation. This is still about a witness, among whom you shine as lights in the world, holding fast to the word of life, so that in the day of Christ I may be proud that I did not run in vain or labor in vain. What are we seeing in this? What do we know about the character of Christ? Is the character of Christ one of disunity? No. So if we are to be witnesses to who Christ is, if we are to be disciples, does it make a difference if there is disunity within what is called the body of Christ? This complaining is stirring up division. Again, do they have a reason to say there's something wrong here? They do. But is the complaining going to resolve that issue. Well, complaining doesn't resolve issues. Complaining just makes issues harder. Complaining stirs up division. That's not the example that we see in Christ. What did Christ pray in his high priestly prayer of John 17, in this wonderful passage where Christ first prays for himself, then he prays for his disciples who are there, and then Christ does this incredible thing. Christ prays for future Christians. And who's that? Us. You know what he prays? I do not ask for these only, but also for those who will believe in me through their word, that they may all be one, just as you, Father, are in me and I in you, that they also may be in us so that the world may believe that you have sent me. Did you notice the pattern of the Philippians passage, the pattern of John, this John passage, both times it talked about the witness that we have before the world. In the Philippians passage, it says that we might be a light in this crooked generation. In this John passage, that the world may believe that you have sent me. How we act as a church is a problem if it detracts from who Christ is. So what's the problem in verse 1? It's taking away from the mission. It's taking away from what God has said 
This is your role. So we have this problem. The apostles become aware of it. How did the apostles respond? They respond a little bit in a surprising way because clearly we see there's a real problem here. So what do they say? Let's do it. We've got this. Don't worry. The the A team is here. We are super Christians. We will resolve this issue. Look at verse 2. And the 12, 12 apostles, summoned the full number of the disciples and said, It is not right that we should give up preaching the word of God to serve tables. That a little surprising to you? It is to me. Clearly, this is an issue. Clearly, this is impacting our witness. And what the apostles say is, this is not right. We're not giving up preaching to serve tables. And when we initially read that, what does it sound like? That's beneath me. I, I am way too important to serve tables. As a pastor, if I ever have to wash bathrooms here, oh, no, that is, I am way above that. That's how we interpret it, right? Is that what they're saying? No, because again, what is a problem? Anything that would get in the way, would impede, would cause a a, a distraction from the mission. Can good things be a distraction from the main things? What's the main thing? To preach God's word. Understand, they're not saying this issue is not important because they are actually going to give them wisdom on how to resolve it. But notice very carefully the, the importance and their intentionality of the words they speak. It is, they don't say, it is not right for us to serve tables. They don't say that. Why? What do we know about Christ? What did Christ do? Peter, come here. Sit down, Peter. No, Jesus, you're not Peter. Sit down. I'm going to wash your feet. If washing feet, which is way further below in that culture to serving tables, if washing feet is not beneath Christ, is serving tables beneath the apostles? No. That is not what's happening in this passage. What do they say? It is not right for us to give up preaching to serve tables. Let me illustrate it this way. Let's say that you, back in the day, in, when you had, anyone watch A Little House on the Prairie? I, I feel like often, because I grew up in Brazil, I uh, work better with a generation that's like two before me. Where like the things that I watched, the things that I did, I'm like, oh yeah, yeah, Bonanza, Hogan's Heroes, I know all of those things. Any Nickelodeon thing or from any, I have no idea. If it was in the 60s, in the 40s, I have a better idea of knowing what, about it. But Little House on the Prairie, thinking about that, these, you would have these teachers. What if the teacher goes, she has been brought in to do a job, and she looks and she says, none of my students have socks. They're going to get cold. I know what I'm going to do. I'm going to spend my time knitting socks so that they won't be cold. Is that a good thing? Yeah, it's good. What's the problem? Is it a school anymore? No. She's doing something that's good But in doing what is good, she has stopped being what she is meant to be. The problem where our church could become so distracted of this is a good thing, but it's not the right thing, and we cease to be who we are. 
What is it that causes us to be a church? The preaching of God's word. The communion of the saints. It is not right for us to give up what has caused us to be who we are in order to do this, even if it's a good thing. A good thing does not necessarily mean it's the right thing. See, what, the, what they're doing here is that they are teaching the church that there is a priority in this mission. Did we see that example in Christ? How often did Christ say the purpose of his mission? I am here to do not my will, but the Father's will. John 6, 38, For I have come down from heaven, not to do my own will, but the will of him who sent me. And if that's the case for Christ, do you think he's going to do the will of everyone else? No, he's going to do what, Christ, what the Father has given him to do. Here's what I want us to, to see some of these connections before we move on. We need to recognize real problems according to our God-given mission. There will be things in this church that you would say, man, I think it could be better. Oh, or this is a hard thing. This is an inconvenient thing. Is it a problem? That depends. Is it stopping us from being who God has told us to be? Is Billy leaving a problem? What's the mission? What's Billy going to do? Do you know where Billy is right now? He's preaching at a church that wants to hire him. So now, you don't have one pastor preaching. Both of your pastors are preaching. Does that fall within the mission? So I'll ask again. I want a little bit more of an enthusiastic answer. <laughs> Is Billy leaving a problem? No. Could it lead to problems? Sure. One of the things that we were talking about with the leadership recently, one of them made the very good point. Billy's our crisis guy. Someone's in the hospital, two in the morning. It's Saturday night. I'm supposed to preach. Billy's like, Stephen, I got it. You're okay. Go home. That's happened on more than one occasion. Crisis counseling. Stephen, I can do this. Hey, Billy, I'm sick, and Hannah is, thinks it's wise for me to not preach tomorrow. I got it. That might lead to some difficulties which could lead to problems because certain elements might become neglected. Don't complain about those things. Bring them to light. Seek to resolve them. Come talk to me. I have so appreciated when people have said, hey, Stephen, we're noticing something that we think is a problem. Compared to what I've had other times, hey, there's a group of people who are trying to build a case to change this and, and they're, they're stirring some things up and, and then it's totally different recognize real problems, not perceived problems, not uncomfortable things, recognize real problems according to our God-given mission. Also then, beware what does not resolve problems, but rather makes problems greater. Complaining is one of those things. It doesn't resolve anything, it just makes it greater. Along those lines, beware in seeking to solve one problem, you actually neglect something that is far more important. That happens so often. How many churches are doing many good things while neglecting the main thing? And don't think that that's just something that they can do. We are so capable of doing that. 
As I've been looking at this passage, how many times have I, I, I don't think the problem is always that other people bring things to me and say, hey, Stephen, um, you need to fix this. And then I'm like, okay, I'll do it. And then I start neglecting the word and prayer. A lot of times it's my own nature where I'm like, oh, I see this problem. I'm gonna jump into focus, focus on that. And it has been so helpful to put people around me who say, Stephen, you don't need to do that. Go do what you're, most, you're supposed to do. It's okay. We've got this. You go do that. That's what God's called you to do. Let's move on and look at how we resolve problems utilizing scripture's wisdom. Because now if we can recognize them, we need to seek how to resolve them. Again, we're gonna go back and look through two through uh, four. And the 12 summoned the full number of the disciples and said, it is not right that we should give up preaching the word of God to serve tables. Therefore, brothers, pick out from among you seven men of good repute, full of the spirit and of wisdom, who we will appoint to this duty. I want us to see some of the wise counsel that we see here. What is the first thing that the apostles do? They summon the widows. They summon the Hellenists. I mean, technically, yes. Who do they summon? How big is that? Like over 15,000 people at least. They summon the full number. Now, why? Is there not a simpler way to resolve this? How many widows do we really think there are? Even thinking forward, you know what their solution is going to be of picking seven. Don't you think the apostles could pick seven godly men? What's the point of pulling all the full number in order to address this? I think the first one is because of what we've already seen. They want to teach and expose a greater danger. They take advantage of this and say, wait a second, that is a problem. But if we're not wise about this, it can lead to a greater problem. If we seek to resolve this in a way that causes us to neglect the preaching of God's word, that's a bigger problem. I think that's the first reason. I think they bring all of the, apostle, all of the disciples together as a teaching moment. I think the other reason that they do it is to restore unity. What has happened within the body? There's division. What was said in chapter two, what was said in chapter four, they, they were all of one mind. They had all things in common. What was a powerful witness of the unifying element of what Christ does when he gives us a new heart and not only makes us a new person, but causes us to be a new people that has been undermined by what's happening. So they call all of them together in order to restore unity but they also call them in order to equip the church to resolve the problem. This is something that we, we sometimes miss, I think especially in modern day America. Stephen, we pay you to do this. That's your job. I, I don't really know what you're, you, you, you keep on asking for more. That's what I give my offering for. Now understand, there is times in which wisdom would say, hey, we have enough money that we can pay someone to put the carpet in here. We don't have to do that ourselves. But there's also times where we need to say, no, this is for us to do. Whose job is it to do the work of ministry? Pastors? Deacons? Christians? Yes. It's our job. He pulls all of the congregation because they want to teach them this is for all of us to do. We have a job that if we would stop doing this, this would be wrong. 
all of us need to see that there are people in our church who are hurting. We all need to be part of this solution. This is what Ephesians 4, 11 through 14 says. And he gave the apostles, that's who we're seeing in this passage, the prophets, the evangelists, the shepherds and teachers. So I think that in this passage, we are seeing an example of leadership in the church. He gives all of those. Why? To equip the saints for the work of ministry. Which saints? Who, who are the saints? Christians. Those who have placed their faith in Jesus. Why? For building up the body of Christ until we all attain to the unity of the faith and of the knowledge of the Son of God, to mature manhood, to the measure of the stature of the fullness of Christ. Who are we witnessing? Who are we meant to demonstrate when people look at us and say, wow, that body looks a lot like Jesus? so that we may no longer be children tossed to and fro by the waves and carried about by every wind of doctrine, by cunning, human cunning, by craftiness and deceitful schemes. He gave these to equip the saints. This is where we need to understand who's meant to resolve the problems in our midst. We are. You might come to me with a problem and say, Stephen, I think that this is an issue. Not complaining. And there will be times where, I, where I'll say, yeah, that is within a pastoral role. That is something I need to preach on. There will be other times where I will say, you know what? I think we can do something about this. I think that you need to be part of this. But are we looking, is our framework where, wait a second, that's not my job description. I have a job description. I have to go five to eight o'clock, five to eight, or eight to five um, every week, and I have to be here. So don't bring me all the stuff from church. This is a family. Can I do that when I come home? Hannah, that's not my job. Your mom. You take her to go get stitches. I'm tired. I have a message to preach tomorrow. That's my job. No, this is our job. What are we? We're family. We're the body of Christ. This is what we are meant to do. Notice what then they also say as far as, as they're equipping them. First, they are demonstrating it's the responsibility of everyone to resolve this issue. But then they give them wisdom in how to do it. Because could this develop into a chaotic where resources are wasted, where, you know, all of a sudden these widows have, can't even open their door if they had a door because there's so much food. Yeah, that could be an issue as well. So what do they do? Pick from among you, pick out, therefore brothers, pick out from among you seven men of good repute, full of the spirit and of wisdom, whom we will appoint to this duty. This challenges another way in which we think about things. When we see a problem, who is it that we want to put in a position to fix that problem? Well, let me look at how skilled their hands are. You know, this is a problem that needs a, a certain... Do, have they ever worked for a nonprofit organization? Do they, what, kind of, what kind of skills have they acquired in their years? Oh, they're a good manager. They own their own business. That would be a person. Oh, wait, how much do they know? Like, how much have they studied? And, and those, that's the person that we should put in this position of authority. What do the apostles say? Not the skill of their hands, not the information in their head, but the purity of their hearts. Look at the qualifications. Good repute. Full of the spirit and of wisdom whom we will appoint. Good repute. Full of the spirit. Full of wisdom. 
When you look at the qualifications, and I, my, my view is that this is what we see eventually become deacons within the church, the office of deacon, but acts as a transition period. When we look at the qualifications of deacons in 1 Timothy, how many skill words are in that list? None. It's all character. When you look at pastors, how many skill words are there? Maybe one. That they need to be able to teach. They need to have an understanding of sound doctrine. Apart from that, it's all character. This is the wisdom. And why, again, bring it to the congregation? So that the congregation can recognize these individuals. Can I tell you, one of the greatest blessings over the last few years for me has been as we've seen our deacons change the role and how they serve at this church. And that what they do for me is that they say, Stephen, we've got this. You go preach. There are so many times. This last week, I sent a message to the deacons saying, guys, I just walked through the church and here's all the projects I saw got, that got done. I had no hand in. If you walk, I, just wait until you go downstairs and see the linoleum that got redone. The, the, the project that's happening out here in the lobby. There are so many things happening. I didn't touch any of it. It was not a distraction for me. Having deacons who are serving as deacons has been such a freedom for me. But you were the ones who recognized them. You appointed them. Why? Because at times they're going to need to ask your help. One of our issues sometimes is that the deacons have more than they can do. They're wanting to do it. And so might, they might come to you and say, hey, this is all of us. There's widows who are going hungry. I don't think that the reason they picked seven men was because it was like, well, we counted how many deacons there are. If each of them take five, seven should be, probably cover the issue. No, I think that they picked seven because there's wisdom in plurality, but also so that these can mobilize others to do the work. When your deacons, whom you have seen, whom you have brought the name, whom we have appointed, come to you and say, here's a need, don't go and say, hey, that's why we elected you. That's your job. No, this is our job. Now I want us to look at, first, we have a repetition of the unwavering devotion of the apostles when they say, but we will devote ourselves to prayer and to the ministry of the word the second time that preaching has been mentioned. And now we see the compelling response of the congregation, verses five and six. And what they said pleased the whole congregation. And they chose Stephen, a man full of faith and of the Holy Spirit, and Philip, and Prochorus, and uh, Nicanor, and Timon, and Parmenas, and Nicholas, a proselyte of Antioch. They, these they set before the apostles, and they prayed and laid their hands on them. How is the congregation responding? They're following the wise counsel of their leaders. As much as there is elements, there, there, this is one of the tensions, and it's a good tension within the church. You are, and this is always a little hard to say, you are to submit to me. That's Hebrews. Submit to your leaders. At the same time, I'm meant to submit to you. Submit to one another. Ephesians. There is this element in which this goes both ways, but what we see this congregation is they are responding and they are submitting to them because they see the wisdom of Scripture. What they said pleased the whole congregation. And this is what I find so compelling about their response. Do you know what is the, the common denominator, the pattern of every name that's mentioned? They're all Greek. Do you know why that's significant? Who are the ones that are hurting in that congregation? They're Hellenists. They're Greek widows. 
Who's the majority of that church? Hebrews. So who might look at an issue and say, wait a second, we need to make sure if there's going to be seven, let's get four Hebrews in there. Make sure that the vote will go our way. Make sure that we keep it because we don't want this to go crazy. We don't want the minority to take over everything. What does the congregation do? If they're the ones hurting, what can we do that would most serve them? They pick six Greek Jews and then they go even beyond that. Do you know who the last person is? He's not even a Jew as far as heritage. He's a proselyte. He was someone who converted to Judaism. This is a beautiful response. If the world looks and says, wait a second, you guys had all the power, you guys had all the money, you could make all the decisions, and you put a minority that was hurting in charge of all of that. Does that reveal Christ? Is that a powerful witness? So how do, how do we resolve issues in our church? We don't neglect our responsibility in helping the church resolve problems, meaning collectively. We're zealous for unity in the body. We don't complain about issues. We seek to be equipped to do the work of ministry. If you're thinking, I'm not ready to do that, try to be equipped. Go to someone and say, can you help me get there so that I can be part of the solution? Bill does this all the time. Hey, I'll show you how to paint. Come on, come spend an afternoon with me. We don't have to just do it with physical things like that. I have people who say, hey, can you show me how to study God's word? Yeah, I'll equip you. If you're thinking I can't be helpful, try to be equipped. Submit to wise counsel of your leaders. Appoint people of character, not skill, to positions of authority. When a problem arises, be willing to put aside your preferences or privileges for the sake of revealing Christ. And when all of that happens, what does God do? What happens to the church that wisely recognizes and resolves problems in their midst according to the priority of their God-given mission? God produces a result far better than they could have ever imagined. Look at verse 7. And the word of God continued to increase, and the number of the disciples multiplied greatly in Jerusalem, and a great many of the priests became obedient to the faith. This is a glorious result, and I want you to notice all three elements of it. Because how did the passage begin? Was it, was, were we in a good place at the very beginning of the passage? Now, in the, these days when the disciples were increasing in number, is that good? Yes. Is it because of what happened at the end of chapter 5, where in every day in the temple and from house to house, they did not cease teaching and preaching that the Christ is Jesus? Yes, a good thing is happening. And then they hit a blip on the radar, they hit a bump in the road, and there's a problem that arises. But because they respond faithfully, are they back to where they started or are they far in a far better place? They're in a better place. Notice the three things. The word of God continued to increase. It didn't stop it. The number of the disciples multiplied greatly in Jerusalem. And then this surprising one. And a great many of the priests became obedient to the faith. Who takes the credit for those results? I understand it's a little bit of a trick question. First and foremost, God takes credit. God produced that result, but I don't want us to miss the context. This incredible result was because of the faithful response of that congregation. 
It's not the apostles that take credit. It's not the deacons who take credit. It's all of them. Together, because of the way that they responded, look at the incredible thing that God did. I don't know what God is going to do with our church. I don't know what problems may arise in this process in 2024. And I will tell you that there are many elements about it that I am apprehensive. There are things where I'm looking and saying, I don't think I have much more to give. There are parts where I'm looking and saying, I'm losing one of my best friends. There are many parts of this that are a difficult burden, but trials don't mean they're problems unless we allow the trial to get in the way of the mission. We don't need that to be the case. Billy leaving does not mean it needs to be something that gets in the way of us doing what we're doing. In fact, I will say I have seen the opposite. I have seen this process cause people to say, hey, Stephen, I, 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 um, I think I might want to serve in this way. Hey, Stephen, I, I would like to be equipped to do this. Stephen, I think that this is a way that we can make sure that no one gets neglected. That's a beautiful Result, not because of a problem, but because of a trial. The reality is we are going to face problems, problems even that might come out of growth. We must recognize them. It is so easy to look at things that we think are problems, but they're not problems, they're just trials. Recognize a problem. Recognize what would get in the way of our witness of our mission. We must seek to resolve them with wisdom according to the priorities Scripture has shown us. There are wrong ways to fix problems. There are wrong ways to do good things. It is good that the widows were fed. It would have been wrong if the apostles had given up preaching of God's word in order to do it. So how do we not resolve problems? We don't do it by stirring division through complaining we don't cause secondary issues to take precedent over primary. We don't distract people to do something that God has not told them to do. And we recognize maybe it's something that God has called me to do. How do we resolve it? We resolve it as a body. We resolve it with wisdom. We resolve it with people who are qualified, not just skilled. We resolve it with selflessness by putting the needs of others before our privileges and our own preferences. And then... We watch and we wait and see how God will use our faithfulness to produce results far beyond our imagination. Recognize and resolve problems in our midst according to the priority of our God-given mission.